0: this is preachers on preaching frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the christian century magazine and now here is your host matt fitzgerald
1: Vince Amlin is a young preacher. He spent seven years as an associate minister and just recently, just weeks ago, became the new co-pastor of two churches, Bethany United Church of Christ and Gilead Church, both of them here in the city of Chicago. In this conversation, Vince and I talk about what it's like to preach as an associate minister and uh, whether or not he sort of felt an itch to be preaching more frequently during those seven years. How he feels about preaching in a brand new context, why it's so hard to preach at weddings, and finally Vince and I get into a conversation about a truly heartbreaking but hopeful, intense chapter in his own life, and how going through a lot of pain and a lot of hope changed his faith and changed the way he steps into the pulpit. Here he is, Vince Amlin. So let's talk about how you got to the point where you're starting a new church and also stepping into a long-established church or trying to revitalize one in some ways, right, simultaneously. But prior to that, um, you served for seven years as an associate minister in, I want to say down in, so here we are in Chicago, down in Gainesville, Florida. Is that yeah, right? That's right. So first of all, um, tell me about Gainesville. What kind of, like, that's a, is it where University of Florida is? Yeah, of okay. course. So
0: is it like okay. a typical college town? Is, is it like Ann Arbor or Madison? Uh, I mean, they wouldn't say it's a typical college town, but it's, (laughs) yeah, it's a typical college town. I mean, very much, uh, you know, a strong university community. Uh, I think, you know, being part of a church that wasn't, uh, there weren't a lot of students at the church. There were a lot of professors, um, but there were also plenty of people who had no relationship with the university. So I felt like I got to see more kind of the, you know, the real Gainesville, the real town, you know, outside of the outside of the school and it's just like a really cool uh, progressive you know interesting, place with amazing people. It was, it was a really good place to do ministry.
1: Was it different than, I mean, my sort of Midwestern Northern assumptions are going to be the Florida's Bible belty. Right. And um, so, so is Gainesville itself kind of an outlier in that regard?
0: It is. So they, I mean, they call Gainesville the end of the South, you know? And so North, North Florida is kind of like South Alabama or South Georgia. Um, But Gainesville is that like blue donut hole in the uh, red donut around it. So,
1: so to be a, a mainline liberal Protestant preacher in Gainesville wasn't like perhaps as sort of um, alarming as being one in, I don't know. Uh,
0: Bell, Florida, Stark, Florida. There we go. Uh,
1: <laughs> right. I mean, there was a sort of larger context that held your church. Is that yeah, right?
0: Yeah, very much so. I mean, so did at you f- its worst, a bubble. A bu-
1: okay. Yeah. Did you feel um, preaching in the South? Was it? Was it different than, I mean, you hadn't lived down there before, right?
0: Yeah. The South was definitely different. Um, Preaching at the United Church of Gainesville, um, you know, it it was, as a university community, there's so many Midwesterners down there, um, you know, especially like in Western Florida, because i-75 you know runs down from from the midwest like everybody there is from ohio and indiana and illinois so uh in that way it felt really familiar and and really comfortable um there were times that you know i think being part of the larger community you know there were times when it was clear that we were the outliers um you know, from a from the wider context, in a the for,
1: theologically, ecclesiastically, yeah, yeah, for sure. Did it? How did it feel? I mean, you're a very good preacher. You're a very good writer. Did you feel, and in, and in, in you're serving in an associate role for that long? Um, did you feel a, a, a annoying sense or a growing sense over the course of your time there that I really ought to be preaching more? Was that something that you aspired to or longed for?
0: Not at all. Like, <laughs> if anything. Well, I should say I had really generous senior colleagues the entire time I was there. And so I got to preach uh, once a month. When I started there, there were four of us ministers serving. And uh, when I left, there were three. Um, But throughout the time, I was preaching once a month and kind of came to feel like once a month was just about the right amount of times that you know at least that I should preach now I'm going to be preaching much more than that, but you know it felt like if I had a month to uh, think about it, I might have some you know one good thing to say
1: did your did you preach your way into a particular voice over the course of that time did you did you like start off coming out of seminary, maybe thinking I'm this kind of Christian, I'm this kind of preacher, I fall into this theological school, and whoa, seven years later, look at who I am now. Was there that? Did <laughs> who that have I become? Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, well, somewhat. I'll say it, it felt that way, um, although recently, having preached my last sermon there, I went back and looked at my first sermon from that, you know, just to do kind of the bookends for myself, and ultimately that worked into the into the sermon. And I was surprised going back and reading that first sermon. I was like, oh, I actually am the same person, you know, Mm -hmm. and I had a style and um, a a point of view from the beginning uh, that I thought was more different than it actually was. Um, But that place certainly shaped me, I I think. um, What would the difference be
1: or the assumption of difference, at least? Um, Like if you had to say back then, how would you have identified yourself theologically seven years ago as opposed to where you are today?
0: Yeah well, I guess theologically, I was kind of a strange fit to go down to that congregation. I knew it was um, very progressive. And and even more than that, it was um, kind of expansive in terms of the religious beliefs of the congregation. And um, I came out of seminary, I think, you know, much more sold on a particular version of Christianity. I was, um, and still am deeply influenced by uh by intentional Christian community and um, which often is like Mennonite in its theology um, or, you know, Neo-Orthodox. And just the idea of like the, the seriousness of the commitment of being a Christian and, and what it means to um, be part of the church, you know, all of that was kind of like.
1: So a deep dive into the, the particularities of Christianity and that sort of narrative, theological, post-liberal, Stanley Hauerwas, William Willem on that kind of thing is that what, is yeah, that what you are carrying sure. with you
0: for sure that's what I brought with me um and uh yeah and and I see ways in which that you know still exists in me and also uh coming into this this um context that was so you say
1: religious that. expansively before we started recording, you said that the congregation um was, was actually a, in, in some regards a multi faith congregation, right? I mean, a Christian church, but the, that had uh, a fair number of of people coming and holding fast to Buddhist, atheist, other traditions, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so
1: did, did when you stepped in, did you have did, did you feel as a young minister, did think you know, cherishing, prizing, prioritizing uh, the, partic- the particularities of Christianity? Did you, did you feel like I have to? to tiptoe here or did you feel like i'm gonna rock these people back on their heels with the pure gospel like
0: where 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 was i in that spectrum yeah well so um so during my interview weekend there uh i remember they they put their ministers through this kind of crazy i i thought it was like akin to if there was a reality show for ministers like uh, this gauntlet of uh things that i had to do and so it was after like a 13 hour day of interviewing um I did this worship service. And then there was like an hour of questions about how I would do worship um, after that. And one of the last questions of of a long, long day was uh, from an atheist member of the congregation. And she said, "Uh, you know, how will you talk about God to someone who doesn't believe in God? And so uh, I woke up at 2.30 that morning (laughs) and thought, what the hell am I doing You know, or what what does this mean
1: Uh, in terms of like, I don't know how to answer that question and I don't know if I want to or.
0: Yeah. Or yeah. I mean, what does it mean for me to live into all of that? All that that question asks, you know, I mean, is that a question that I should should be answering or, you know. Um, And so really for the first easily for the first year, I woke up at two thirty and three in the morning, like consistently when I was. Especially when I was called on to preach, uh, just just holding that tension and figuring out, you know, what does it mean for me to be to affirm a specific Christian faith and a meaningful and um, uh, active Christian faith, and to minister to uh, a congregation that that doesn't necessarily affirm that. And part of what I, you know, love about Um, That theology that I went in with is that um, it's all about, you know, like the truth claims that we're making are activated by faith in Jesus Christ. So, you know, it doesn't even necessarily make sense to talk across those borders because the truth of what I'm saying has to do with my, my belief in who Jesus is. Right.
1: And if the person that you're speaking to doesn't know what that means... It may as well be that you're speaking a different language to yeah, them, it's Totally right?
0: unintelligible. So that's the
1: assumption behind the, the the theology. Anyhow, how it plays out differently in real life, I think sometimes at least. Right? Yeah,
0: well, it certainly it played out differently for me. So, I mean, I just lived with that tension and lived in that tension. And I think what gave me the um, uh, perseverance to to live within that tension, I have a really. I think I have a really high pneumatology. I don't have a high much anything else, but my sense of the Holy Spirit is is pretty present to me. And so, you know, I had a sense from the beginning of working with this congregation that like, wow, you know, what I identify as the Holy Spirit is present here in spades. Like amazing things are happening in this congregation. And there's a real spirit of of love and there's some, you know, there's something of God here. And so um, I need to stick around and figure out what that is.
1: So in as much as you were, it doesn't, I mean, you weren't coming out of as a child, you were raised in a liberal Protestant tradition. It's yeah. not so so it's not like, it's not like you were sort of bred in the bone as a dogmatically rigid, Christian. No, probably the
0: opposite. Of the- right? Yeah yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So, so maybe at some level you're sort of trying that on, you know what I mean, or like stepping into it or seeing the good in it, right? But it didn't like maybe seep so deeply
0: into who you were that you couldn't let go of it or couldn't be flexible with it. Does that feel accurate? I think it. I think it did seep in deeply. I think it. It shaped me, and that's what. That's what woke me up, you know. And mm-hmm. it, it was like, you know, I grew up in the United Church of Christ. I grew up the son of a, a liberal ucc minister whose whose ministry was basically to like go to small uh rural midwestern congregations that were you know more conservative than him and kind of nudge them a little bit more toward like a social gospel or uh you know taking the revolutionary aspects of jesus's life seriously i, mean,
1: I feel like at some level that's my story as i'm, I'm like, i
0: like tried i
1: saw the uh, when i started reading that kind of theology Um, it was so appealing and it was such a necessary corrective to the excesses of the theological liberalism I've been raised on. Um, I sort of took it on as a new identity, but I think because it was new um, and wasn't the original theological identity that shaped me, that I can't ever really escape when I have to let go of the theological, the doctrinal rigidity that I've grown to love (laughs) <laughs> it's pretty easy to let go of. Do you know what I mean? And uh-huh. I don't know. I, don't mean that, like, I used to beat myself, beat up on myself about that. Like, oh, you're faithless, or you don't really believe in these post-liberal claims, or you don't even really believe in Christianity if you can, like, slough it off so easily. But I've come to realize, like, well, it's a process, right? And um, my my theological identity, I don't think, is, is fixed for all time. So yeah. you changed in those seven years.
0: Yeah, it felt like, rather than, like... A- a trying on it um it felt like something i came through I, a necessary corrective is is helpful language and also just you know something that i had to um ultimately you know blend with uh with the kind of liberal christianity that i came up with and then you know come up with come out with something different than either of those you know that that there was some kind of synthesis that happened in me while I was in Gainesville. And
1: not only did you come up in that liberalism, but also then there you are preaching to it and with it, right? Yeah. And immersed yeah, yeah. in it again as an adult. Uh, and that's the way to do it, I think, is to have uh, flexibility. Um, I have made the mistake in my own ministry of um, the second church I served, which was far more theologically liberal than I was, um, I I think I thought to myself, okay, my role here is to um, help God pull the scales from their eyes and, you know, bring them to Jesus and teach them that this is not something, you know, a a relatively orthodox Christianity, a relatively orthodox Protestantism isn't something to fear. It's something that is incredibly life-giving. I had experienced it that way. You know, I do not want to go through the narrow gate until I finally did and found myself, I like to say you know in a much more spacious and broad place than I ever was before um and so I remember the second sermon I preached at that church I preached a sermon about you know, you know the the obstacle between God reaching into your life uh and you is your own pride in insisting that you know better than Jesus does <laughs> and what you need to do is submit right and and uh I, I honestly think I then had to spend the next two or three years undoing the damage of that one <laughs> sermon. Let's talk about preaching at a brand new church. So here you are. So you're serving a neighborhood church here in Chicago. It's been around for a long time. Uh, it's had its ups and downs and is now, um, right, you know. Pretty small. Pretty small, right, in a, in a pretty big building. Yeah. Um, but has a core group of people that absolutely love it right yeah, and have super
0: faithful core
1: high expectations for their new pastor um, let's talk about that context first like how many how many sermons have you preached there
0: I've preached actually just one, so I'm co-pastoring with a, a friend of mine from Divinity School, uh, Rebecca Anderson, and I'll just mic check her right now. <laughs> uh, but uh, so she preached our first week and our third week, and I preached the second week, and I'm preaching again. This
1: then you're week. on tomorrow. Do you feel like yeah. they're um, like? I sometimes think of like this sort of uh, like triple consciousness of a, of someone hearing a sermon. You know, like they're they're getting hopefully the word of God right. But in this context, they're also like kind of probably projecting out like, oh, this is the new minister and I'm going to be listening to this guy for a long time. <laughs> and, you know, do I like it? And then on During the other hand, they're also
0: sermons on Mexican wrestling. Exactly. Like, yeah, like, and then, me, and then two,
1: like in this context, like they're probably also thinking, can this guy do what needs to be done here? Yeah, you know, it's not only yeah. not, not just do I like it, but is this going to be effective for the people who are pushing their strollers outside the building right now who aren't in here? Like, well, they like it. Yeah. Um, when you're, when you're, do you feel heard right now when you're preaching or does it feel? like just the sort of phenomenon of newness overwhelms everything oh
0: it's definitely the phenomenon of newness you know it's i going from a congregation where i'd been there for seven years and had just like deep tight relationships with the congregation just felt like so known uh and and felt like i knew them so well uh to like going to this new congregation it feels like i've lost a superpower or like lost a sense you know of you know one of the five it's like uh all of a sudden all the things that i thought i could do uh are gone and it turns out like it was what the congregation was doing for me you know what or at least you know what we were creating together yeah. and so um you know, I tend to use humor in my sermons fairly regularly, and right now it's like nobody knows to laugh. You know, and so it—or maybe you're not funny. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess we'll find out in a couple of months. No, you're yeah, ba- exactly.
1: I found the same thing. It's like, uh, or like the right—you have to sort of like reveal, especially if the person that you're uh, following didn't use humor in the pulpit right right um,
0: right and certainly not in the same way I mean yeah it, it reminds me of preaching at at weddings so I remember this wedding I did last last year and um a friend of mine was there and afterwards she's like you were so hilarious but no one laughed <laughs> I said, yeah, welcome to preaching a wedding. Like it's a community that's not really a community. They don't know each other. They don't know you. And so there's just this sense. I mean, it's going back to that sense of like, what does it mean for people to see you as a minister? You know, there's all this projection. There's all this sense, uh, you know, of what's supposed to happen in worship um, that you have to dismantle or just like live through and, and show them, well, actually, this is how I do this this is who I am
1: and at the same time it's not a great platform for doing any kind of dismantling because you also while doing a wedding is something that as a as a preacher and a minister you know is a regular occurrence for you it's not a regular occurrence for the couple there so you don't necessarily want to use that's how I feel you don't now.
0: warm up the audience or <laughs> just
1: or 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 be explicit about uh you know either how to worship or um you know the kind of like if it weren't a wedding. I think as a worship leader, you could use that dynamic that you're talking about and that gap between preacher and congregation and the strangeness and the lack of focus perhaps on people's part who are there to worship ostensibly, right? All those things are all energy that's in the room that can be named, turned, played with, but... If you're doing somebody's wedding, it's it's probably not the context in right. which. I mean, if there's right. anybody out there listening who knows how to do what I've just described and also allow the couple to feel like they're having the day that they've been dreaming about, please be in touch. Right. Maybe
0: in like one or two sentences that you could do <laughs> right at the beginning. No, yeah, I mean, and there's no point, right, because... I mean, well, maybe there's a point to creating a community for that time. And I think we try to do that as as preachers, you know, as as best we can, also within like the cultural context of what weddings mean in America. But but yeah, but it but it does matter when you're starting in a new church and you can do that work and kind of name that like, oh, you don't know when to laugh yet. So let me tell you. Yeah laugh now no.
1: or it's okay to laugh right, right. and yeah. and um, that's yeah that's hard it's funny because the the, the reverse is true too. Um, I use less humor um in my preaching than my predecessor did at this church and um it's not that i don't like to laugh it's more like as a i, I don't know i mean it's a, i find humor in sermons to be a a, a bewildering topic it's like <laughs> it, it it for me at least you know sometimes i can do it and sometimes i can't and sometimes i feel like i need to and i can't and sometimes i feel like i don't want to and then there it is but i, I, I don't feel like I, i'm in control of that part of preaching um not that i'm like inadvertently funny it's more like i can't be <laughs> reliably hum- humorous, you know? And um, and I think my, well, I know him. He's a he's a very funny person, actually. He's got a terrific sense of humor, my predecessor here. And he's reliably funny. Like, he can always get it going. And um, so the expectation after 30 years of hearing him preach is that sermons are often humorous, you know, more often than not. And that's not who I am. So I think sometimes I would look out in my first couple of years here, and I would see on people's face, like, they want to laugh, like they're waiting to laugh. They're used to laughing. And I certainly <laughs> think laughing in church is a good thing. But I don't, and I'd look at you know, I'd think about like the next nine minutes, and like there's no jokes like, in there.
0: <laughs> I just see the word cross a lot for the next nine <laughs> exactly minutes. Exactly right.
1: <laughs> what am I doing? Um, oh, that's great. The um, so the the new church start that you're doing. Um, do you have a congregation that is gathered that is listening to a sermon?
0: No, no. We uh, we'll start worship in january that's the plan gilead church chicago uh um but we're we're just doing that work of gather we're just trying to like meet people in coffee shops and talk to them about you know their experience in church and reach out Um, one of our kind of core, uh, practices as a congregation is around storytelling. And so we're doing storytelling events and, uh, you know, just finding ways to reach out to people. But yeah, we're not preaching there yet.
1: When the storytelling happens, when you, when you, when you and Rebecca are thinking about what your liturgy is going to look like, um, will that be like testimonial time from people who are worshiping there? Or is that something that'll happen outside of worship?
0: Uh, it won't be a testimonial in the sense that that's traditionally been used. I think it'll be, um, but yeah, it will be something that happens in worship. Like weekly, you'll have a member of the congregation sharing a personal story, um, a, you know, around a theme mm. and the idea, you know, I guess kind of why it's a core practice for us you know, with a new church, you're hoping to reach out to people who have not been in church before or haven't been in church in a while. And so our hope is, and we've talked about it as a kind of like Pentecost moment as a time of translation of um, finding new language for the traditional faith or the historic faith, um, the ancient faith. And so um, what we want to encourage people to find God in their stories um, we talk about it as you know, every story is a God story mm. and to find themselves in God's story. So um, so teaching people to tell their stories, to shape narratives, but also teaching people or giving people the the lens through which to see God present in their lives. So it's, you know, testimonial for. For me, brings up that sense of like you know, once was lost, now I am found. There's
1: a there's a prescriptive formula,
0: right, right, and this is more you know, it doesn't have to be put together in that way, and you know, it might be about um, forgiveness not given or not received, or you know, what uh, this, you know, a moment of transcendence, whatever, whatever that looks like for the week, we're going to be doing probably worship themes, and so um, thinking about you know, what's the story. Um, around transfiguration or where do you think
1: the energy for new church starts church plants that are you know that don't look like the church that you were raised in um where's that coming from in the main line there's a lot of work being done in that area across different mainline denominations a lot of money being spent
0: um i wish more money were being spent on those um, if you want to spend some money on a new church start please contact me uh, but
1: but where's that coming from like why uh, uh are your generation of of preachers and ministers doing this that where's that um uh what's the right word um entrepreneurial zeal coming from why, why now
0: i think you know my sense of it is that Making and entrepreneurship are kind of having a moment in themselves, like this idea that we're going to get back to the fact that or the reality that we can make our reality, make our communities, that we can build new things, um, you know, that we don't have to kind of take the out of the box prescribed uh, version, you know, even though that I mean, when we're talking about the church, that's something that I've loved, the churches that I've been a part of, Um, you know, for, for us, I think it also has to do with seeing the energy there is around community, around storytelling, and believing that um, the church has a story to tell, like believing that the gospel still has power and wanting to use this new form, uh, you know, as, and, and not even just wanting to use it, but believing that it's a potent way for, for church to happen, you know, believing that people's stories are a place where God shows up. And so, um, you know, there are people like, if you walk out in Chicago, any night of the week, you can go to like a packed bar or theater where people are telling true stories about their lives. And, uh, you know, and churches are empty or, you know, not all of them, but, uh, you know, so this sense of like people are hungry for story, people are hungry for meaning, and the church still has meaning to to provide. And so, and so why not do something as
1: different? a Christian, uh you're able to sit in one of those storytelling venues or to hear the moth or whatever and see God at work, right? Yeah, in a venue that's not. Allowing for that, not naming it, not acknowledging it. Is that right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Not name, usually not naming it, sometimes naming it. But yeah, I mean, you hear these incredibly moving and powerful stories about, you know, forgiveness or, uh, you know, about resurrection and no one says resurrection, but, you know, you know, last week I was at this uh, or a couple of weeks ago, I was at the moth and this, The theme of the night was divorce, you know, and so you had like multiple people who had gone through divorces um, and then were coming out the other side and talking about, you know, what brought them through and what that meant and, you know, creating their step family. And, you know, it's just like it's just resurrection and gospel everywhere you look. And so why not? Uh, bring those stories into the context of worship and sh- and let people know that their stories are sacred stories. You know, if they're inter- <laughs> if they're interested in that. Well, it's you know, great. It's not and- like I want to colonize their story as sacred, but but to uh but to say, you know, God is we believe God is in your story. You know, I know sometimes I feel compunction to be the one to come up with the story, to have the kind of brilliant example. But, you know, I'm I'm only seven years into it. I've, I've mined the limited gold of my life, you know? Um, but people want, people are hungry for story and, and it's there. We had this great tradition in, in Gainesville of lay preaching. And, uh, it was incredible. I mean, it was six times a year that lay people got up and, um, And shared, you know, like that shared powerful stories of, of, uh, faith and life. And, uh, it was always good and often better than what I was doing.
1: And then you get to see God active in my faith life. You know, God goes away and is absent utterly and like totally silent. And one of the wonderful gifts of being a preacher is you have to kind of just push through it and keep preaching uh, but it can be dispiriting of course and deflating spiritually and i know other people go through the same thing so they have the opportunity to hear about god active in somebody else's life total i mean, yeah, I mean somebody I, who's not a religious professional right it's very inspiring
0: i led this small group uh, this past spring actually called write your sermon and led people through the you know four week process of i gave them assigned them a scripture and uh, you know they did the whole whole deal and like the the evening where we had like our little preaching festival of nine sermons, it was one of the most powerful experiences of my ministry. And, you know, I mean, there were, there are sermons from that series that I've come back to, you know, for the last five months to kind of fill my well of like what it means to be a person of faith, you know? And so what did you do with them? Did people preach them then in in worship or what, what happened to them? so, um, they got preached in like, we, I mean, we had our evening of, you know, nine sermons and I, you know, I invited the congregation in a kind of tongue in cheek way. Like, I'm sure you'll want to come and hear nine sermons in a row this Wednesday night, you know, over the course of two and a half hours or whatever. And, uh, like 50 people showed up. Oh, I love it. You know, so it was like I had put out chairs for like 10. So, so, uh, you know, people were for, were hungry for that. Um, I know one of them ended up getting preached uh, just a couple weeks ago in, in the regular Sunday service. It's, it was just like uh, a really incredible sermon. Many a, of them were.
1: What but. a wonderful idea. Let me ask you about your own life and your own recent, um, um, you know, the circumstance of, of your daughter's birth, which is both, of course, great joy, but also a, a rather traumatic um, uh, set of circumstances. She arrived. Quite early, right? She um, was,
0: yeah, she was somewhat early, but also um, had this condition called uh, intrauterine growth restriction. And so she wasn't, she was almost 33 weeks gestation, um, which can be okay now. Uh, but she was born one pound, one ounce, yeah. you know, w- more like she had been at, you know, 27 weeks or something like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, it even really started before that, the kind of trauma of it, we, we, Went in for the 19-week ultrasound, found out she was measuring at 15 weeks. we uh, were told to come back for weekly uh, heart rate monitoring, and told that one of those weeks her heart would have stopped, and um, and then we kind of take the necessary. So you steps. were
1: given like a, you were given a death sentence. Yeah, she absolutely. Was. Oh.
0: And so for seven weeks we did that.
1: So you would go to the
0: doctor with the anticipation of. This might be the week, and one of them would. One be of the them week. will be the week, oh, man. Um, and so we did that for seven weeks. When she got to, I forget, I guess it was twenty-seven weeks or so. Um, they said, "Well, uh, she she's still here, and so uh, there's some chance that, even though she was uh, even much smaller at that point, less than half a pound, I think, um, you know, there's some chance that if she was born now, we could um, we could." save her life and so they admitted my wife to the hospital she was on bed rest for five weeks and then nola was born um yeah and then like for the next three months she was in the hospital there were like all these times when uh she you know we would talk to a doctor and they would say well uh there's this issue it's either this kind of catastrophic thing or maybe it's nothing and like three or four times it comes out as nothing, you know, (laughs) like where like we were given, you know, a death sentence multiple times and over and over again, uh, delivered from that.
1: And that's your first child. Yeah. Um, how did, like, did you feel in the moment when you were like on that? I don't know. I mean, having this sort of like, last minute reprieve over and over again about your daughter's life. Did, did you feel held protected or did you just feel like you're running right? You know, like, like existence itself is like sort of raging out of control all around you. What?
0: Yeah. I felt ultimately I felt held. So, shortly after it, this happened, uh, we found out like the, that she wasn't growing properly, like right at the beginning of Advent. And we had this tradition of Advent contemplative prayer, where we would gather in small groups, we would listen to a passage and do Lexio Divina, and then gather in small groups, to kind of share about, uh, what we heard and also like our prayers for the week. And that first week I shared this with my group. And, um, one of the members so they you know dutifully prayed my prayer was like i just want to be a good father to her you know for as long as as she does continue to live you know and knowing that she's not going to make it just to still love her in utero and uh and so they kind of dutifully prayed that during the small group and then afterward one of the people came up and was like um i'm not gonna pray what you asked me to pray I'm going to pray that she um, makes it and is born and is just fine. (laughs) Which, you know, in general, I would not suggest, you know, to kind of uh, change someone's prayer. But that, that became kind of a theme for me over the next, really the next year because there were, you know, complications at least that long.
1: Isn't that intense that, you know, as a seminary trained professional, you know, don't do that. Right. Right. This person is just going to be, this person is just going to be honest with you. Right. And, and, uh, and pray what needs to be prayed. And Uh,
0: yeah. And that ultimately, yeah, that, that was exactly what needed to be prayed for me that, and, and it was incredible. I mean, we, I, we had people praying for her, you know, around the world. I kept getting texts of like candles lit in different churches in jerusalem in south america like you know cards from various churches all around and our and the the church in gainesville just just held us and just held hope when i could not hold hope um and so you know and it and it is this thing where like i'm the seminary trained professional but i just like again and again felt like uh mostly after the after the relief of getting the good news uh just feeling like this faith you know my utter faithlessness in the face of yet another challenge and it really i mean it really was every time you know last fall when when nola was already um i guess uh 7 months old we got Uh, another diagnosis and it was the most serious of all of them and um we're told that she had this progressive um incurable disease uh of her heart and um and you know we were just in utter utter despair and and asked people to hold that again with us and and you know fully believed what the doctors were telling us and and you know for me i just accepted that that well she's going to die we don't know when and we can pray that you know it it was a situation with her uh pulmonary uh veins and so um you know it could be in one to four I, i think that's right it could be in one or it could be in all four and so we were just praying let's hope it's one and that will give her the kind of longest best quality of life possible And, uh, we spent two months in that place because we couldn't, she wasn't big enough to do the test for another two months. And, uh, you know, just ask people to hold that with us and, and pray for us. And, uh, and we got the test back and it was zero veins. Like she didn't have it at all. And, you know, it was at that point, like after like the fifth or sixth miracle, like that was the point at which I was like, okay, I guess I have to. You know, start. You know, start experiencing this in a different way. A different... I've got to like. You can only be banged over the head with this, you know, so many times. But, but it's like... a
1: very human thing to have the prospect of your child receiving bad news, um, and to default to that to protect yourself from your own hope, right? Yeah. Um,
0: I, so well, that. So she. She was our uh, first child in a sense but she was our sixth pregnancy you know and we had a a son who uh was delivered alive and lived for 45 minutes you know so Mm. who was our first child and and so yeah i mean there is a certain way in which like uh you know hope springs eternal but maybe not you know i mean like at a certain point uh you have to kind of shield yourself spare yourself the heartbreak yourself you know and i mean it's such a it's it's uh it's such a great lesson of faith to like. Then keep keep putting yourself out there. I mean, I think parenthood for everybody, you know, no matter what their situation is, it's like the, continuing to put yourself out there in love and and knowing that you have no control over this person or their life or you know their well being. Uh,
1: how has this is maybe this is a crude question, but how has that experience affected? I guess the—I mean the 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 big and most important question is how has it affected your sense of of God in your life, but but how has it affected your your preaching? Has it? I mean, it must obviously have have, or I don't know. These things take a while to unfold, so maybe it hasn't happened yet. But there's no way you're keeping that. Not I don't mean to use it as a as a story in a sermon, but there's no way you're keeping that experience out of the pulpit, right? The way that it's um, shaped you, hurt you, healed you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well. I, I think more than affecting my, like I was thinking about this and that, you know, the mechanics of my preaching, I'm not sure that someone from the outside could like look at sermons before NOLA and after NOLA and really see any difference. Um, But the experience of going through that as a minister and, you know, going through the hardest moments in your life publicly in front of a congregation of 700, you know, and where, we were really in a position where people knew the intimate details of her health. I mean, not in an inappropriate way, but, um, it just became, it was such a big thing that it was impossible to not have them be a part of it. Um, that was like deeply affecting. And I think, and I think bonded the congregation and I in a profound way, you know, I mean, so to that, idea of like I mean it's the opposite of preaching at a wedding or preaching to strangers it's like we had gone through this thing together and and and, you know how could we not both be changed by that experience and I just had this sense through that whole time of like this kind of self-conscious sense that like I am ministering to people as I am just living through this you know and so you know it didn't show up I mean it has showed up explicitly in my sermons but but it also just showed up in in my own sense that like if there was ever a time to be true to who I think I'm called to be like now is the time which is like a weird thing to say like it, but that makes it perfect sense artificial. yeah it's, yeah was, i mean
1: i mean does my does my ability to minister my call as a preacher rest upon everything being good in my life at a given moment or does it rest
0: upon the power, the love, the grace, the call of God. Right. Right. Um, And you can preach, you know, dozens of sermons about the cross, uh, you know, or, or about suffering. And, uh, but when people see you in the kind of depths of your suffering, like what does that look like and what, and I don't know, I just had this sense of like, what permission am I giving people to experience their own sorrows and, and, and just who do I want to be in this? You know, I mean, it, like I said it wasn't it wasn't an artificial thing it wasn't kind of play acting but it was just this sense of like I I'm aware and I think as ministers we're often aware that we're that we're being watched that we're living our lives kind of publicly and uh and who do I want to be who does god call me to be in this experience
1: God is working for the good in all things for those who love god kind of category right Yeah uh.
0: Yeah when you can tell that story you know to a congregation down the road, but no one, I mean, the the experience of going through it together and really, I mean, we were just really held in prayer by a congregation in Gainesville that, that maybe didn't, I mean, many of them don't, didn't pray regularly. I mean, many of them did, but, um, you know, a congregation that was skeptical about a lot of traditional, uh, God language and God practice, okay. um, but who just like went to bat for us. <laughs> like, you know, like I wouldn't use the word prayer warrior, but like definitely prayer
1: definitely warrior. Definitely did it. Oh, that's wonderful. And that's a nice example then, you know, to kind of bring this full circle of you coming into that context as perhaps more of an Orthodox Christian than they might have wanted or expected. Um, and how that we talked about how they shaped you, but how you shaped them as well To to see that as, um, as love right yeah. and to give it back to you Vince thank you so much for this conversation just oh, greatly awesome. appreciated
0: yeah thanks for having me of course thank you for listening to the Christian Centuries Preachers on Preaching podcast this episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hooker and Elizabeth Palmer.